Welcome to Joe Dawowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, mime painter, and so much more, including director Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this episode, we're looking at the eight-volume Jodoverse spinoff of The Incall, published from 1998 until 2006. It's the Techno Priests. Joining me on this journey are two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Podcast. It's our own Tiddy Griefy, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Uh, I, I'm good. Hopefully I don't poop in your pocket. <laughs> Liam, the thing I'm most concerned about is such a spoiler for this entire series. But right. let's, yes. let's just True. say Fair. <laughs> let's just say that we, we stay two separate people for the remainder yes. of this podcast. I'm okay with that. <laughs> with us as usual on Jodowski is the wonderful writer-director Julia Marchesi. How are you doing today, Julia? I wanted to be the cute rodent sidekick. Come on, man. That's the key. He's the best. He is the best. And I did. Uh, I actually was going to reverse the uh, introductions on this one. So you could be Tina Griffey. But I also thought that it's possible that someone could take offense at being called a little mouse. Then again, Aww. the little mouse is pretty heroic in the context of this uh, this series we're going to be talking I about. I take it in like a Mrs. Brisby kind of power <laughs> mouse kind of, you know, compliment. I think you can be the mouse and I'll be the creepy kids, both of them at once. <laughs> <laughs> How about so, one of those pirates, Liam? Would you like to be one of those? Uh, no. Okay, well, we'll be talking about that a little <laughs> bit later. Uh, this was kind of an intense experience. Uh, I'm not going to go too much into the comics at this point because we have some announcements to make. But I will say that that the eight volumes of this series, which thankfully is a complete series with a beginning, middle, and end, uh, it's so dense. It is, of course, in some ways equally as dense as the Meta Barons and Incall work we've done previously though that when i think back on that in-call episode and the amount that we had to read for it it's all been i guess light comparatively but uh there's a lot for us to dive into and delve into and and to break down uh and so i hope that um listeners i hope you've had an opportunity to read this work and can join along with us uh but if we get anything wrong please uh give us a little bit of uh, slack there's just so much <laughs> and just trying to keep these characters straight in my head is going to be uh, difficult enough. Uh, I want to ask before we get into the announcements: Have any of you had any uh, Jodorowsky or Jodorowsky uh, experiences since we last recorded? Have you watched any of his films? Have you uh, encountered anything out in the wild? Uh, starting with you, Julia, anything at all? I had a bunch of friends send me. There was a Holy Mountain T-shirt thing that was yes. going around Instagram mm -hmm. that a bunch, like like three or four friends sent to me. They're like, Julia, you need this, and I was like, oh. <laughs> I don't know if Joe Dorasco would be happy with that, really, though. Like, me being sold his shirt through Instagram. How do you think he would feel about that? I think he'd rather that you just sat in a room and uh -huh. visualized the shirt. And then yes. instead of having it... <laughs> Become one with the shirt. <laughs> Become one with the shirt. You know, you could be wearing any shirt. That could be a Holy Mountain shirt, as long as you believe enough that it is. Maybe I'm misinterpreting <laughs> I his, like that. Uh, <laughs> his belief system. <laughs> How about you, Liam? Any uh, any Jodowowski? You know, I, I sometimes say Jodowowski when I mean when I mean Jodorowsky. So let me, I love that. Let me, let so me do go I. back again. <laughs> any Jodorowsky in the wild for you? You know, not really, although I will say on Horror Business, we recently had some guests who are, you know, people I know, but they're not really close friends of mine. They're more friends with my co-host, Justin. And one of the guests brought up that uh, Holy Mountain is one of his favorite movies of all time, which Ooh. I did not know. And mm. I really wanted to derail the conversation, which at the time was about Suspiria and sure. talk instead about the Holy Mountain. But I realized that would be <laughs> not fun for the other guests or for listeners to the podcast. So I just quickly mentioned 
uh, my my love for that movie, and then we we continued on. But for a moment, when he I, I, said I hope that, you also mentioned that you have a podcast devoted to the director. Sure, sure, sure. But the, <laughs> but the point is, I wanted to be like, oh my god, and just start talking. Like I wanted to totally nerd out with this person. Other than that, I will say, um, Irish Jodorowsky is that his daughter or granddaughter? I don't I actually know. His, I believe it's his granddaughter. I think it might mm-hmm. be uh, maybe Brontus's daughter or I don't okay. know. I, one of these days I need to break down the family tree because I keep I following them on Instagram and they just get, they seem to be uh, uh, multiplying. <laughs> so many. There's so many and I never know who's who. She, she was she was in a movie, re- a French movie recently uh, that came up on uh, our like download thing and I started Sorry? it yeah, exactly. And I started it, and I did not finish it. It was it's like a, a a bit of a relationship drama, but I haven't I haven't had a chance to go back to it because, as you know, but you know, people are probably sick of hearing of. Uh, I was interrupted in life by COVID, and then I I haven't gone back to a lot of things since I got better. Like it just sort of like I went into a haze, and now I'm trying to get back to life, you know. But it seemed kind of interesting. I didn't even know she was an actress. I just knew she was related to Andre Chernarowski, and then that movie came up, and I'm like, oh, I know who that is. It was very weird. Not to give anything away, but on the next episode of this podcast, we are going to be uh, covering some material that goes a little deeper into the Jodorowsky family, uh, and hopefully maybe we can break that down a little bit more then. Gonna As we move into the more recent Alejandro Jodorowsky product, uh, products, projects, um, there's a lot <laughs> Don't of Don't say products, mem- man. He would <laughs> no, not like right. that. <laughs> <laughs> his his uh, movies in particular. Uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of his family members, and I think it'll be interesting to maybe expand our view a little bit. Like I said, I, I follow a bunch of Jodorowsky family members, and I keep track of their – on Instagram, and I keep track of the work that they're doing. It's just a lot that we can look at, and of course now the new generations, you know, some very successful musicians and actresses – uh, there as well, I think there's a, a DJ in the mix. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to talking about it uh, at some point. But before we get into talking about the Techno Priests today, and there's a lot to talk about, there are a few announcements. And the biggest one is the one that we're going to start with, which is uh, this episode is going to be releasing um, on the 12th of February. And that's just a few days before February 17th, which is Alejandro Jodorowsky's 95th birthday. So we want to wish Alejandro a very happy birthday a, a pretty incredible birthday i mean 95 is something to celebrate in any context anything any thoughts around that julia 95 years old that makes me so happy i'm over here like bouncing in my seat with glee <laughs> uh it makes me so happy and you know the thing that makes me the happiest is that he's still making movies like that's incredible the fact that he is still doing any work at all, generally, listeners, I would uh, suggest against that. If you're 95, just relax, enjoy, you know, rest on your laurels. He's not doing that. He has a lot of stuff coming out this year. And honestly, uh, compared to the amount of time that we've been recording this podcast, he's really been more busy than ever. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. Uh, Liam, uh, 95 years old. Can you even comprehend such a thing? No, I, I actually can't. <laughs> At all. And I think it's for me, it's not even just that he's uh, amazingly reached such a great age and is still doing work, but also has gotten an experience that a lot of uh, people don't get, which is the rediscovery. Right. Absolutely. For a lot of mm-hmm. people, their work, their art or other kinds of work are uh, rediscovered or maybe even discovered for the first time after they're gone. 
and he has both written the 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 fame of when Holy Mountain came out, and he was really people were really paying attention. And then it, he, you know, it felt like maybe some of his films were in decline. And then suddenly he's back and making movies, and you know, people want to make films of his comics. And I, I just think a lot of other artists, not even just directors, but all kinds of people who make things, they don't get to see that. And I, I'm just so grateful that he's gotten to see people get excited about his work again. Yeah, to be celebrated in his own time. Absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting that, um, you know, we I'm not going to say that it was strictly Frank Pravich's documentary that made this happen, but certainly it was a large contributing factor to the wider world who may have only known him from his movies from the 70s, knowing that they, this is a creative force who has stayed very busy over the last 50 years. And I bring up that number specifically because November 27th, 2023 was the 50th anniversary of the release of The Holy Mountain. Um, I mean, again, the, the time that Alejandro was making The Holy Mountain he was, you know, he had already been working for uh, 15, 20 years in, uh, in in the kind of artistic industry between being a mime and his comics work and then going into filmmaking. And here we are 50 years later and The Holy Mountain is still, I think, probably his most beloved work. Liam, would you agree with that? I don't know. How, wait, well, El Topo. I feel like they're both up neck and neck, I feel like. I mean, there's definitely both. Are, those are the two that I think are, are in competition, certainly. But yeah. I, I, think, I think actually that it's El Topo overall. I will hmm. say that I think in the last few years, by few, I mean like five, six, I have seen more and more activity uh, and people talking about Holy Mountain. But for a long time, I think it was El Topo. And I think Holy Mountain was maybe... It put people off a little bit because it does seem a bit impenetrable. Whereas while El Topo is very strange, there's something like a plot. Sure. And, and I think, honestly, some of the more extreme elements of El Topo are actually more accessible to some of the extreme film fans. Whereas Holy Mountain might feel, I don't know, maybe just a bit too spiritual or abstract for some people. Uh, but recently, I don't know. I, I feel like Julia's right. It's neck and neck. Although I will say I'm surprised. Uh, I also think that Santa Sangre, because of some recent releases, is starting to pick up activity as well. And I have definitely seen people who maybe are, you know, not hosts of a a Yodorowsky podcast who actually, while they love one or even two of those movies, are still not quite aware of the breadth of his work, let Mm -hmm. alone the comics and stuff. And so, like, I really hope that, you know, getting into something like one of those movies leads people to check out more of what he's done, both film and, and comics-wise, you know? I will say that that doing research for this particular episode, what I found was that there's lots of people who definitely, I mean, there's lots that has been written on the in-call in that universe, and, and Jodorowsky's comic work in general, but in terms of the techno-priests, it's a little bit more limited in English. There's obviously a lot of uh, international writing on this work, but really not as much kind of kind of critical work on the techno priest. So uh, hopefully we can spark a new generation of people who are going to be appreciating that and maybe diving into it because believe me, there's lot, lots to tread on here. Uh, published on January 11th, 2024 is the book Alejandro Jodorowsky, filmmaker and philosopher by author William Eginton. Uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, this is a description of the book. Alejandro Jodorowsky is a force of nature at 90 years old. He's still making films and is a cultural phenomenon who has influenced other artists as desperate as John Waters and Yoko Ono. Although his body of work has long been considered disjointed and random, (laughs) William Eggington claims that Jodorowsky's writings, theater work, and mime, and his films, along with the therapeutic practice he calls psychomagic, 
can all be tied together to form the philosophical program that underpins his films. Jodorowsky, from a philosophical perspective, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm very curious about this book. I actually followed the uh, author on social media to see if maybe we can uh, get in touch with him. But, uh, I mean, if, if any if any filmmaker or any creative force could use a uh, philosophical deep dive, I think Jodorowsky is one of them. What do you think, Julia? I'm into it. Let's do it. Let's let's, let's read it. it. Let's talk about it. Always <laughs> into it. Yes, please. J- Julia, your, your uh, endless uh, thirst for uh, Jodorowskian content is one of the things I appreciate most about you. Any... <laughs> Any non-creative person or maybe any closed off person, when I when I like <laughs> keep putting off the like films that we're going to be doing, like short films or films that just <laughs> basically don't even involve Chodorowsky before we get to the big ones, uh, would probably be a lot less patient with with just me, I should say, since I, I'm uh, I keep pushing off because I just want this podcast to keep going and going. And there's lots of lots of material yet for us to talk about. Well, as we mentioned, there's a billion Jodorowsky offspring that we could branch off to at any point if we wanted to. <laughs> I just like 10 years down the line and we're talking about his great, 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 great <laughs> It never stops, Jodorowsky. <laughs> uh, the popular YouTube channel Cartoonist Kayfabe recently released a video entitled Exclusive Jodorowsky's Dune Art Collection, Comprehensive Illustrations from Mobius and H.R. Giger. Uh, this is a channel that, that uh, is run by two... Uh, pretty well-respected cartoonists and authors in the comics field, and they do a lot of deep dives on uh, really a varied comics work. But one of the people that they've really focused a lot of attention on in the past is Mobius. And yeah, this is basically about a 20-minute video that uh, they break down some of the art, uh, a lot of the art that has been available for a while, but kind of has been collected together from the Jodorowsky's Dune project. Uh, And so we'll link that in the show notes if you want to check that out. But the other huge news of this episode is that Alejandro Jodorowsky himself has a new book coming out on August 20th, 2024. It is called The Way of Imagination, From Psychomagic to Psychotrance. Uh, in The Way of the Imagination, the master offers a detailed exploration of the mechanisms by which psychomagic works to heal our most pressing emotional and spiritual wounds. He examines the development of the magical form of shamanic healing and its roots in the work of René Dumas, uh, Eliphas Levi, filmmaker Luis Bunuel, psychoanalyst Eric Fromm, Mexican curanderas, and others. He describes the formalities of the soul, the initial stages of psychomagic's development into a practice, and how he crafted the first psychomagic prescriptions to speak directly to the subconscious through the language of dreams. Yeah, it's another psychomagic book from Jodorowsky. Look, we've touched on, obviously, on this podcast, psychomagic several times, but we haven't done the big deep dive yet. But I'm always curious about more you know, written work from Jodorowsky. Uh, Liam, you you excited to, to dive into the way of imagination? I think so. Although, I, I mean, I think we've been really clear on this show that uh, none of us feels like we have a, a deep insight into what psychomagic is. You know what I mean? Like, when I read, like, a, a synopsis thing, I it kind of makes sense to me. But then when I read longer pieces of things he's written about it, I get kind of lost in the weeds. So I'm excited, but I'm also very <laughs> that's perfect. intimidated. That's a, that's a perfect yeah. description. Well, because it's, it starts off with, like, this idea that ritual – 
uh, uh, magic as a practice of communities, uh, obviously different kinds of religious practices, however you want to describe it, that they're connected to various like emotional and psychological states and that you, by acting out these things, work out things internally. That mm. to me is really clear. But then he gets into the details of what he means and he just has this way of presenting things that's very entrancing, but is it necessarily for me clear? And so that I don't know exactly what we're talking about anymore. So the idea of diving into a book that's an expansion of the other book that I'm not sure I'm going to understand is intimidating, <laughs> but I still kind of want to do it. It's not the kind of intimidating where I don't want to do it. It's just if we get to this book, I'm going to have to admit that I probably don't know what's happening, but that's okay. And, of course, he has the tarot deck on the cover of the book. Just another deep dive on something that I have very little familiarity with. One thing I've always wanted is maybe to get an expert on the tarot to come and chat with us a little bit, maybe give us a bit of insight in regards to that. But, I mean, uh, Julia, you mentioned several times that, you know, you've read some of these books before. And are they as impenetrable as Liam leads us to believe? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I would almost hope so, you know. <laughs> um, but again, it doesn't make it makes me excited to read yeah. it. But you know, it, it, I think that the great thing about Joe Dawowski is that we've never been afraid to say we don't know what it means because there's yeah. no way you could do a Joe Dawowski podcast without saying that. You know, that's kind of the whole. Nobody knows what it means except for him, and that's kind of the fun part. And I think trying to see the world from his point of view is what I like about watching his things or reading his things it's like okay how how does it feel to be inside of Jodorowsky's head this is what it's like and that's what it makes fascinating for me I mean I agree Julia except when it comes to the techno priest which I understand every page of that inside <laughs> and out <laughs> which I'm sure will be revealed in just a little bit uh, also you know we haven't talked about it for a little while really since our El Topo episode but the Sons of El Topo comic series has now ended. And in fact, on June 26, 2024, the Sons of El Topo omnibus hardcover is being released. So uh, we'll definitely kind of uh, jump back into that in a future episode. We'll finish that series as well. Uh, of, of the work that we've covered, the comics work of Jodorowsky, um, that is one that I keep thinking about. Maybe it's because it was unfinished at the time that we, uh, we, we read it. And it's something that I'd like to kind of get closure on. And uh, that's one of the nice things about having a complete comic series like The Techno Priest, that you do get some sense of closure. Mm -hmm. Speaking of closure, I'm going to close out this announcement as usual uh, by talking about a recent Jodorowsky Instagram post. I should note that Jodorowsky has been really busy lately making appearances, much more busy than he had been over kind of the previous year to a certain extent. He's even attending, as of uh, February 16th, uh, a screening of Jodorowsky's Dune in France, followed by an interview. And he's been doing a bunch of recent book signings for that book, which I imagine might already be available in French, uh, but just not in English at this point. There's also been a recent hour-plus-long interview with Alejandro and Pascal in French uh, on YouTube, and he seems in very good spirits in that interview as well. It's, of course, in French, so unfortunately we, uh, we, don't, we won't be able to understand it. But if you are a French listener who wants to check it out and give us a summary, I think it's mostly about his psychomagic uh, more than his film or comics work. But I did want to read from a recent Instagram post by Alejandro Jodorowsky, which was joined by a photo of him looking... Liam, how would you describe his expression in this photo? Uh, uh, bemused? Con <laughs> uh, uh, confused in a frustrating way? I don't know. He, he or, or maybe he just has a headache? I don't know. <laughs> what about you, Julia? Pensive, maybe? I would say confused, but I would say pose confused. Yes, right. Like he's not exactly. actually confused. He's trying to portray confused to you. Right, right, yeah. Jodorowsky writes, Today, the first Sunday of February, is my rest day. For no effort, I'm going to convey some thoughts that for many years barked in my brain like faithful puppies. 
these are the thoughts. Yeah, one to six. Number one, let's not lose hope. If time helps us, everything is possible. Number two, accuracy in an uncertain reality is an obstacle. A law can be useful, but not fair. Number three, we all march into a night full of sunrises to come. Number four, the value of what you are given lies in the one who gives it to you. Number five, altering the harmony of a world is not a manifestation of power, but of powerlessness. And number six, it's not the strongest that wins, but the one that hangs out the longest. A hammer survives a hammer. And finally, the thought that has been useful to me for years is all is well. Hoping that these ancient words have been useful to you, I send you a sincere hug, Alejandro. Julia, some uh, some uh, uh, useful phrases from Jodorowsky. Any of those uh, resonate with you? Well, I think for a man who is about to turn 95, the one that hangs out the longest wins. A hammer survives a hammer. There you go. That's punk rock. I like it. <laughs> and his case, he, he has survived a lot of his enemies, right? Or maybe enemies is too strong of a word. What's, what was great is, is as we've seen when we were talking about the Holy Mountain, and as we saw in the Jodorowsky's Dune uh, film, you know, he didn't just live long enough that he has um, conquered, man, that's a wrong word, outlived some of the people who were combative with him, but he's actually repaired some of those relationships, right? And was able to live long enough that, you know, these relationships that were strained or maybe uh, became distant, he was able to repair them in, in a really kind of positive way, which I like that too. We should all strive to live long enough to repair a lot of these bonds. How about you, Liam? Any of these, uh, these uh, sayings stick out to you? Well, I, I think they all represent a move towards something very hopeful, which, you know, maybe at 95, we shouldn't be surprised that he sees a lot of hope in the world, like, because he's lasted <laughs> so long. But I do think, you know, his work is uh, at times very dark. And so his insistence on um, the persistence of good things, I think, is is encouraging and says a lot. Whether the comics work that he we are about to talk about, the Techno Priest, you know, echo a lot of those feelings is something that we can discuss. I think it is a fairly hopeful work, but maybe with a tinge of irony to it. But uh, we'll get into that. The Techno Priest, by the way, which we're just about to, t to start on. The Techno Priest is an eight-issue comic book limited series created by writer Alejandro Jodorowsky, artist Zoran Zhanjitov, and colorist Fred Beltran. It's an extension of the Jodoverse, as we've said, which includes the Incal Saga, the Meta Barons franchise, the Techno Priest, and Megalex, which we have yet to cover on this uh, on this show. It's actually the last kind of remaining piece outside of some Meta Barons uh, spinoffs that we haven't uh, yet uh, talked about. But uh, yeah, so that's the preamble finished we need to take a break and when we come back we're going to get into it eight volumes of the techno priest uh, published from april 1998 to september 2006 we'll be right back Techno Priest follows three plots. The first follows Albino as, as Supreme Techno Priest as he leads 500,000 young Techno Priests to the promised galaxy and the obstacles that they encounter along the way. During this time, Albino also narrates in the form of dictating his memoirs the other two plots, his rise to the position of Supreme Techno Priest and the experiences of his family during that same 
time period. It is the Techno Priest, as mentioned before, published from April 1998 to September 2006, written by Alejandro Jodorowsky. And uh, the artwork for all of the volumes is by Zoran Zanjitov. We've actually encountered him before uh, because he provided the art in place of Mobius on Before the Incall, which we talked about well uh, back on that episode way back when. Uh, I can't remember actually what we had to say about that work, but it's, you know, in this case... Uh, he's not having to kind of ape the style of Mobius. He's able to kind of expand or or elaborate a little bit on the universe that's been created. And he gets to draw some wild shit, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. He's um, Zanjitov, by the way, is one of the most prominent Serbian comics artists in the world. And no, is probably best known for his collaborative work with Alejandro Jodorowsky. And he also, he was in an art rock band in the 80s, Liam, which I'm sure you appreciate. The issues of the Techno Priest that we're going to be covering are uh, number one, Techno Preschool. Number two, No Hope Penitentiary School. Number three, Planeta Games. Number four, Halcatraz. Number five, The Sect of the Techno Bishops. Number six, The Secrets of the Techno Vatican. Number seven, The Perfect Game. And number eight, The Promised Galaxy. Now, the story of the Techno Priest, I can't summarize it. It's just impossible. But each issue has sort of a similar structure that in some ways is reflect reflective of the Meta Barons issues that we were talking about uh, many episodes back. In this case, the framing story involves Albino, uh, who's kind of a... I mean, he's the most powerful techno priest who's in the process, as we said, of leading these 500,000 other techno priests. It, each issue kind of starts in the present day of the comic. And he's telling, you know, he's telling where the uh, ship is on its travels. Uh, we get a sense of all the um, difficulties that they're having finding this new planet. Then he starts in on his memories. So we get a little bit of his own history, starting from childhood right up to the present of the comic. And we also simultaneously get the story of what is happening with his family and their trials and tribulations. And kind of tonally, these things are, are a little bit different. Maybe the first two are kind of similar, but you know, there's real kind of space opera aspect to what is going on with his family. And of course, all of these stories eventually coalesce uh, and, and we get to see, you know, a, a kind of completion to everyone's stories. People live, people die, and will never be the same. So let us start. I have split this conversation into two parts. We're going to start with the first four issues, which actually do kind of fit together, uh, maybe not as a complete story, but in terms of their structure, because uh, the first four are very much him kind of rising to a certain level, while the the uh, the remaining four are sort of where he exists in the world. So starting with these first four issues, where we do learn about uh, Albino's family, about his mother uh, and, and her brutal sexual assault by a gang of pirates where she's left for dead. She then becomes a wealthy cheese magnate uh, who yearns for revenge. A lot of that part of the story is sort of a rape-revenge tale. We also learn about her three children. That's Almagro, uh, who is the brother of Albino, and his sister, the red-skinned Onyx. Um, and then we learn about how they kind of grow up on this desolate planet with their mother yearning for that revenge. Uh, and what we discover within that is because Albino is kind of treated as a cast off, as is his sister Onyx, he spends his time playing video games. And that is, by the way, the core of this series. He yearns to be a video game designer. Now, the video games of this world are more similar to something like virtual reality. But Albino, you know, he, he, he wants to be an artist in the field of video games. It's, he begs his mother to allow him to do it. But the way that you rise up in that field, in the, uh, in the world of the techno priest, involve a lot of supplication, a lot of torture, and a lot of realization that uh, creating art is, uh, is not as straightforward as, it, uh, as he would hope it would be. And maybe that is reflective of a real world experience that Alejandro Jodorowsky has had as well. So let us talk about it, starting with some general thoughts, uh, starting with you, Julia. 
again, we're, I think we're all coming at this cold. Uh, we have some sense of what the techno priests were all about from the Incal, but really this has, even compared to the Metabarons, almost no direct connection with the Incal outside of being in that same universe. What did you think of these first four issues? Uh, really, really cool. And I feel like it's interesting because I don't know, I, because I we read the Incal first, I feel like that's always been my favorite. And I, sure. But I wonder if that's just because I read that one first. And if I had read this one first or the Metabarons Burns first, would that have been the one I liked the most? So I can't really tell if it's like a nostalgia because I read it first thing or if I really that really is the best one. Um, but I would I would say there's a lot of other ones that we have read that I've really not been not been a fan of. And this one I was really into and it was really interesting to see where it goes. And obviously, you know, um, a lot of stuff that we, we can get into. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I'm glad I'm very glad to hear that you enjoyed the experience. Did you find it a quick read? I know that's no. kind of a loaded question, but I, I that was one of the things I found while, while, while reading it. It was just like everything fed into the next issue, even though, you know, they were published over a decade that that it felt like, you know, it felt a little more cohesive than even the Metabarons comics, because the Metabarons were sort of each issue was its own individual story. This is telling basically three grand stories simultaneously. Yeah, it's very, very impressive. And I, I'm so glad that they were able to get the whole thing done from Soup to Nuts. I really also was very glad to see that they were able to maintain the art style the whole time. I think it's really important for making it seem uh, cohesive. And this is, I mean, this you can read the first issue and read the last, and you can definitely tell that all the same people are involved of the creation of this world and this universe. Maybe for better or for worse, depending on what Liam's perspective on this was. Liam, what did you think of the uh, the at least the first half, or maybe just general thoughts on the techno priests? Oh well, <clears throat> let's just talk about the first half because I think as a whole, there's like so much. I, I'll start to feel a little overwhelmed. Of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, I liked, you know, when this book starts, it starts with some familiar themes of um, betrayal, violence, tragedy, uh, othering of people, treating people who are different with uh, disdain, uh, uh, prospering because of the abuse of people. It's mm -hmm. sort of this very kind of basic story in some ways, but uh, resonates with a lot of what he's doing. Uh, and then as the story goes on, I guess actually from a larger view, uh, it's interesting how there are these repeating themes. Like you said, how the stories um, in the books two through four tend to have a similar structure of, you know, he gets somewhere, it's terrible, and then he transcends it, whatever. Um, but there's also this thing where throughout the book, people are suffering reversals of fortune. The person who's in charge becomes the person who's being subjugated the person who's subjugated is suddenly in charge and then they yeah. switch it again mm -hmm. yep. and and what we see again and again is people suffer uh betrayal tragedy whatever and those uh that pain can either cause them to be better or can cause them to heal and and choose something better and what's interesting is instead of that just being character by character you know oh onyx choose this but yeah. you know mm -hmm. amalgam choose that we see characters who choose multiple things in one comic, right? And 
I think, I mean, I don't, we don't know exactly what the process of writing these was. This one felt to me more than Meta Barons that there was some thought to where we were going to end up and what the themes were going to be. 100%. You know, it's one of the things yeah. we talked about with Meta Barons that it felt like he was writing himself. I think he even said that in an interview, right? He'd write himself into a corner and then when he returned to it, he'd have to write himself back out of it again. This one feels like that in the first issue, sorry, I should say that in the last issue, that it's like commenting on things from the first issue. It's it's supposed to be a cohesive work. I think with the in call, even though I do believe he had some idea of where that was going to go, it's pretty clear that he's kind of discovering things as he's writing it. Mm -hmm. And with the meta barons, like you said, he's writing himself to, to a corner and then whatever. And there are aspects of the story that maybe feel like he discovered along the way. Sure. But this one more, even more than those ones, which is weird for the in call because the in call really does feel like a, a circle, right? It's like a it's like a circle that starts over again. I still felt like this was more thought through and cohesive. To be fair, that's not a criticism of the other ones. I read comic books. And oftentimes comic books they change authors, <laughs> let alone change themes of and course. Yeah, so yeah. like I'm used to that. That's not a criticism. But I was struck by how this one, even as it was sort of going through cycles, as an overarching narrative felt very I don't know, like a total product in a way or i shouldn't say product but a, a total sort yeah, of package no. you know we're staying away from that word yeah exactly, exactly exactly <laughs> but you know what i mean like it, it, it felt like one it didn't feel like you're going on this journey as he's trying to put it together and who knows where we're gonna end up i really felt when i got to the end like this all connects in a way that must have been thought about even if there are surprises along the way that maybe he discovered in the exploration of you know actually plotting it out it still felt like there was some thought ahead of time and i you know i i was worried going in that this thing of albino who is this powerful you know whatever with uh with uh his his uh his little mouse friend whose name i i still how did you pronounce it doug T i said teeny griefy teeny griefy now you gotta say it with the accent teeny griefy, teeny griefy. Teeny griefy. <laughs> i really thought that that structure it reminded me of Meta Baron, sure. Yeah, very but much so. it, But it also felt like it might get old. And I was not bored. And I think part of it's because very important to me, plot things happen in those introductions. Yes. They weren't just introductions of, here's a couple of jokes, let's get into the real story. It felt like I was invested in the future as much as I was invested in the past. And that, I think, added something very necessary that had me... And again, I think you guys are right. This is a dense bit of you know graphic storytelling but i rip through these actually i mean yeah. you know when i had time you know i have stuff going on. it wasn't like i could just sit and read it in one sitting but every time i was reading it i didn't feel bogged down and there's a lot of words like for a graphic piece of work there's a lot of reading you got to do in this thing and yet i never felt like oh this is getting slow or oh i'm having trouble i felt like i want to know what's going to happen next even though i felt like i had an idea of where it had to end up there were so many weird surprises along the way that I sure. felt like really pulled forward in reading it. Yeah, I think the art helps with that a lot too because yes. it's very clear. Uh, you know, it's it's he has to draw a lot of bizarre things, but in terms of um, for those of us who might be a little more familiar with Western comic books, you know, there's there's a consistency there from that sort of work that it makes it kind of easy to follow, uh, if not the philosophical strands, then at least the plot strands that are going on. Uh, I do want to ask specifically about these first four issues, which uh, you, you uh, referred to it there, Liam. They kind of, each of those issues take sort of a similar structure where you see Albino, uh, after the first issue in particular, where he's being brought to different places and he's finding his way in this world of the techno priests, which are sort of, for those who may not be familiar, 
it is a, they are a religious sect like the priest would suggest they are like the power that is held over all technology in the universe to one extent or another though this universe seems to have evolving rules as it happens but in the context of this uh of this series really they they control the universe through the use of these video games that are produced under their watch and there are different levels uh or hierarchies in in terms of it in terms of this group, the techno priest, and he is making his way up these hierarchies by continually flaunting the rules because he's just so much more talented than everybody else involved with it. And he's able to kind of really, uh, we talk about corners and kind of writing yourselves out of them. In some ways, he seems to have almost unlimited power because whenever he he faces something that makes him so upset that he starts to vomit, which happens, I think, in every one of the first four issues, um, something happens that allows him to transcend and uh, conquer, and at, at by the end he has become, you know, he has overcome everyone at that hierarchy and is ready to move on to the next one. After we get past these first four issues, things, you know, it starts to kind of uh, settle into a more of a hero's journey type story where they're all heading to this one place. But uh, I wanted to ask you, Julia, did you find that structure repetitive in the first four issues? At, by the time we got to the fourth, I wasn't necessarily finding it repetitive, but I was like, oh, there's a predictability to it in terms of structure, not in terms of the actual content, that I, I wasn't sure if I found comforting or um, frustrating. How about yourself? I liked it, the way that this one worked better than the Meta Barons. Hmm. So I feel like the Meta Barons ones got a little... Uh, uh, onerous after a while uh, but these ones didn't i feel because they also made sure to have some sort of action happening within that time so it wasn't just them talking because uh, sometimes there's you know firefights and all sorts of like exciting stuff that's happening during those times so you're getting action in those scenes as well as exposition one of the things i like most about it is that he's continuously uh, facing these tests, right? It just seems like everywhere he goes, someone is trying to test him. I really like that test with the black and white balls at the in the first issue, where he's he has to open up a, one of two containers and uh, and pick a, a certain color ball while he's in a room with those uh, filled with those balls. And he the way that he kind of maneuvers out of that, I think is really clever. It feels very much of the mind of Jodorowsky. How about you, Liam? Did you find any frustration in the kind of repetitive structure of these first four issues? I mean, no, I, I, I didn't. I see what you're saying that, it, you know, it does start to kind of follow a pattern. And I guess I did feel that it, that that those first four issues were in some ways getting predictable. However, I do feel like that pattern, it's meant to re represent different kind of lessons he's learning. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say on this first read through. Uh, and I and I mean I will I am actually hoping to try and read this again sometime. Um, on this first read through, I don't know that I understood all the patterns. Like I feel like it, you know, eat with each lesson, albino's. Uh, uh, he's presented with a way to transcend the suffering or the evil that he encounters, but he also learns that in some ways he still has to participate a little bit, right? Yeah, and I kind of like that as sort of a, a realist or even pragmatic uh, critique of idealism. But um, I also didn't know if the lessons are meant to be building on each other or if they're just narrative. You know what I mean? Like this is the interesting thing here is that there is a philosophy at work, but sometimes I'm not sure how allegory that how allegorical the allegory is in a sense. Like it, do these lessons build on each other? Are we meant to be learning from them or are they simply like narratively necessary for understanding how the techno priests work? I don't know. Uh, and I think 
that repetitive nature is why I was thinking of that, that oftentimes in this kind of storytelling, you might be repeating these things to build upon different lessons so that in the end, you've got these, this, maybe this structure of like three repetitions, those three repetitions might make a triumvirate of ideas that you are meant to take from the narrative. You know what I'm saying? But you know, if you, you know, the, the pyramid shape is kind of a consistent shape that we see right. in this and, and in other works as well. But I don't know if that happened or not, and I don't think that's on the book. I think that was – I was so wrapped up in the narrative that I didn't stop to think about how these lessons might be related to each other in more of an abstract way. I just wanted to know what was going to happen to Albino and, funny enough, to the family because the family could be treated like a side story. But I was also wrapped up in their story too. I really was like narratively compelled even though I think there's a lot of like philosophical stuff going on. I also want to mention one of the themes is that he keeps meeting bosses that are full of shit. Like every time he has a boss, some other person comes in and is like – how dare you tell him what to do? I know. Yeah. You know, this is like not a, like he they're was, higher up. You know, he, they treat him like shit and then their higher up treats them like shit. And, and what's funny is he keeps meeting these people and the way they present themselves or the way he encounters them, they are the most powerful being he's ever met. And then we slowly learn that they suck and are stupid and aren't, you know, that great. And that might be a bummer for some folks for me. And I don't think this was the point. It reminded me so much of my actual work experience that like every <laughs> boss is flexing muscles they don't have because actually they're insecure because someone else might fire them, you know? And so like I found it so satisfying in that sense. And I do think that like as he goes on, the nature of the challenges changes in such a way that I found it interesting as he was forced to adapt and learn and try new things. Uh, the one part about all this that I think is really interesting that I don't know how to parse with you guys is the idea that, like, yes, this is a technological story. These are the techno priests. They have technology, and there's, like, versions of the internet and virtual reality, and he goes into different, like, computers and stuff. But all that stuff eventually, because of the manifestation of the virtual into the physical realm, mm-hmm. also feels like spirituality. This is, like, a spiritual journey as well. Yeah, and that, transcendence. Absolutely. Yeah, and that melding was so fluid. I never questioned it, but... It's kind of interesting how that really worked for me, and I was curious if it was confusing or or uh, interesting for you guys. If you thought it worked well, if you thought it was just Jodorowsky stuff, so who cares? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I thought that was such an interesting marriage. And by the end, he's just doing powerful magic. Like, by the end, he's basically magic, even though it's all technically based on technology. He's basically a magical being who can do all kinds of things, but it's all still related to technology. I just found that really interesting, you know. I mean, very much so. I, I do want to say that um, that it's something we're going to get into in terms of the conversation, right? Because you, you said a lot just then, Liam, but one of the things you said was the fact that he kind of, the character of Albino has to participate a little bit. And I wondered while reading whether his participation got to the point where it was actually a kind of negative commentary on that character, even though it's the main character that in some ways I think is supposed to reflect the the viewpoint, if not the personage of Alejandro Jodorowsky, but like just the, like he participates literally in genocides, right? I mean, he is, he is, it's not him. He's not, you know, his consciousness has been separated to some extent, but he has to collaborate and participate for, for what, decades with these horrible people doing these horrible things but, just to but save why? the 500,000? If he's 000? so powerful, why does he need to just 
kill them all immediately. Why do you have to pretend that you're evil to win? His power levels are are a little bit, I will say, and this is something that is consistent through every bit of Jodorowsky comics that we've had and is very different than Western comics from my experience, which is that in Western comics, your character has kind of a set of powers or abilities. I mean, I'm I'm speaking very much in generalities. I'm speaking really of superhero comics. And, And, you know, they get, they face some sort of resistance or villain and they have to, you know, they can only work within what we know of them and their abilities. But when it comes to Albino, we're never, it's like, it's almost like, oh no, he also can do this. He can do yep. this and this and this. You didn't know about this. He can also do that. He, right. And, and I, I kind of like that because it's so consistent at this point, but I could see a viewer or a reader being frustrated by it. No, I'm I, not frustrated about it. I like it. Like it, because it, it, it reminds me of, was it Moonface? Was that the name of that one? Yes. Okay, where he was kind of a messiah who could do anything, and we were really annoyed by him. Uh-huh. But this is not how I feel about Albino. Like, I'm still not sure how I feel about him because he did kill a bunch of people for seemingly not unclear reasons. Um, but I, I, I like following me as a character, and you think about how different he is from John DeFool, who is this person who's just being like pushed along by destiny, and this is someone who is creating destiny, really. Very much so. But I feel like it's really just a simulation theory kind of that's the whole deal, right? It's like, he's not real. He's virtual. So he can do anything because he's virtual. But this is also really going into like a, hey, we're in a simulation theory thing. Yeah. No, I think there's definitely something there. And a lot of the conversation around these books has to do with the idea of the extension of reality and virtual reality and things like that. I do want to just say, by the way, I was under the impression, and I don't know if this is a very base interpretation of the fact that a lot of the structures of these first four issues are the same but it was liam you mentioning that he keeps encountering bosses and his abilities increase as they go through that it's kind of like the structure of a video game right every issue is like another level where he encounters these different bosses but those bosses you have to then go to a tougher boss and you rise up in power as you go through it i don't know if that is a conscious thing that he was doing or not that is one of the questions i had while i was reading as well is it's like how many video games do you think 60 year old in the 90s alejandro jodorowsky was playing i don't know i mean i you might uh, depending on your perspective think of video games particularly at that time as a medium for children but you might also think of comic books as a medium for children and he never rejected those at any point and continues not to so uh, just something that that i was thinking about as we were going through well i think there's like a there, in the narrative If you are not thinking too deeply about it, you might see it as an inherent criticism of comic books themselves. Like there are so Mm -hmm. many moments, or not comic books, I'm sorry, of video games. There's so many moments that the video games are clearly a tool of the techno priest to not just control the galaxy, but to ruin it, you know, and to eventually lead it to destruction. And we we actually discover that that it's actually there's an evil force even more powerful than the techno priest that have been controlling them to do this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think it is meaningful that they're able to do that because of the power of the games. And I think the suggestion, and I think this is probably true of a lot of people uh, when they're criticizing things, the suggestion is that the tool is not the issue, it's the nature of the world that the tool is inclined to be used a certain way. Especially in the narrative, before we learn about 
what is the Zombra, the world eating, yeah. sp- the the light eating spider? You know, <laughs> yeah. Before we learn about Zombra, it really feels like it could work as a metaphor for just like capitalism, right? Like that, yeah. you know, we we're we're selling games. We're here to make profit, and there's a lot of talk from the techno priests, not just about technology, but profit. Profit is one of the things that rule their world, and honestly, a lot of his most violent acts are brought about because places are not producing the way they should be, that their profits are not what they should be, and thus they they, they need to be destroyed. And so um, I think that at least when that is sort of the you know motivating thing, I think that can be true of a lot of people, that whether it's the internet or you know, actual video games or just the concept of technology that oftentimes these things that maybe with our best intentions are inclined to make our lives better, they don't because of other factors uh, such as profits or greed or however you want to conceive of those factors. I've read several um, articles and commentary from people who work in the video game industry who really connected with that side of this story, but I interpreted it more as a a commentary not on the video game industry itself, but on art generally, right? As you were just kind of saying that that albino is supposed to, in some way, reflect Alejandro Jodorowsky's own experience making art and making maybe making films specifically, but maybe just in all of his different forms of art and the way that he knocks against the commercial aspect of things, mm-hmm. how the tool involved in it, even something like comic books, right? That that the demands of capitalism mean that it has to be watered down or perverted or it's it's uh, poisoning the minds of people. But in its purest form, if you let the artist be artful, that it could be something beautiful and transcendent and magical. Uh, and sorry, Liam, you, you were going to follow up on that? Yeah, I think this is a this is a, 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 a symptom of me thinking very American. Sure. I looked at the timing of this, Doug, and I was thinking about video games because this was peak video games are causing kids to be monsters dialogue. Like this time period is when people were like, because of Doom, kids will shoot up their schools. Sure. So that's why I think you're right. Probably the inclination is towards art more generally. But I couldn't help but think specifically about video games because I was thinking about the time period when it was written. uh, And there was a lot of talk about that then. A lot of like very serious people who thought they weren't saying crazy things being like, Video games, this is it. This is the apocalypse we've been waiting for. Video games are going to ruin all the youth, which, you know, again, was just panic. But I think what this does is take seriously the idea that something that might be powerful, like art or really any technology, could just as easily be corrupted if our only motivation is to, like, profit. Though I do think that changes over the course of the book, right? Like, them demanding profits kind of is interesting when it's revealed that they all just serve a spider that's going to destroy the universe. <laughs> no, none of those prophets are going to do anything for you once the spider eats all the light in the in the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, how much of Albino do you think is supposed to be reflective of Alejandro Jodorowsky? I mean, his main characters are always him, I feel like. I, I kind of feel that way too. Absolutely. I just expect that, and that's fine because I'm like, oh, okay. You you started out like you're the smartest, most powerful being in the universe, and you will be that way the, the entire series. And I go, okay, I'm on board. I I support that statement. I think it's great. Um, this reminded me a little bit, do you, uh, of the movie Toys, where mm. they have the video games that come in that are just yeah, yeah. grooming kids to be in the military. 
which, you know, say what you will. Uh, but I feel like this kind of feeling of the mindlessness of it, I feel like, mm. you know, because I'm sure and I'm sure he means this about filmmaking as well. But that commercial mindlessness where, oh, well, you know, just more explosions and tits and everybody will be happy kind of stuff. Right. right? And that's not him in any way, shape or form. So I think it's I think it's art in probably any form you can think of is probably like that. And I think it's also the corruption is no matter how high, high, high up you go on the ladder, the corruption's always going to be there and you're never really going to win. Um, and it's just kind of uh, useless, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, I feel like, you know, the, the but I feel like he always does a really good job of trying to impress upon you the importance of the artist keeping his voice. So I appreciate that that's really what the statement is, you know, and this is a very thinly veiled kind of like, hey, guys, guess what? It's not all fun and games behind the scenes. No pun intended. One of the issues begins with some of the techno priests, the 500,000 that he's taken to. I mean, they compare him directly to Moses, right, that they're going to a holy land, a land that is going to be removed from technology so they can have real relationships. It's, it's a theme that, that is repeated basically in every single issue. The, the motivation of what he's doing is repeated. But there's like an uprising and a small number try to stop him and bring him back to the regular techno-priest fold. And he doesn't kill them. He wipes their minds. And I'm not sure if we're supposed to think of this as a kind act or as a as in some way a negative reflection of what Albino is trying to do. Um, Julie, did you have any thoughts on that? Like, I think I'm, I, the thing I struggled most with this is whether it's in some way supposed to be a bit of a, not a joke, but like Albino, his motivation, even though he's, he has a purity to him. That's something that's repeated again and again. And he, I do think that he's supposed to reflect Jodorowsky himself, but that it's also being kind of um, critical of him for giving up so much in order to get to this place. Did, did you feel that at all when you were reading it? Yeah, because I guess it's, you know, his, what is his end goal, right? Because at first it started out, he just wanted to be, create video games. Yeah. And then he wanted to like join the techno priest. And then he wanted to be more powerful and more powerful. So if he's really a holy person and the savior that everybody's been waiting for, would he he wouldn't really want any of those things right those are just it's just power which is what you're supposed to not want as a savior as far as i know um and and to follow a savior who has willingly murdered planets of people like what <laughs> i don't really understand <laughs> i i wonder if like for a person a writer whose work is so empathetic and really i mean frankly Love conquers all in these books. That is kind of one of the overwhelming themes. But I wonder if that is a simplistic read of what is meant to be something a little more critical from me, or if that is really just what we're supposed to take from it. Liam, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I think there's a progression of his methods that as they face challenges, he responds to challenges differently. I also think, and this is something I uh, I think maybe is present in other stuff, but I, I, I couldn't pull it out of my head right away. So I could be wrong about this, but I'll put it out as a hypothesis that if we were having this conversation with Jodorowsky and he would say, well, he's going to murder them or he's going to change their minds. Right. And right. you think it would be better if he murdered them? That doesn't make sense to me. And I think that 
this is probably not as interesting as when he learns to accept changing changing their minds in a very literal way for sure. Well, I mean, but but again, but again, I mean, here's here's a deal. I think there are people who would see that and take it as a metaphor for cultural programming of any kind. I mean, right. literally in this country, there are people who would see books they don't like at the school right at the at the local grade school as the same as these people having their mind changed like they right. feel they would feel that's a similar thing and i i wonder because um i think yurovsky has an interesting relationship with radical movements where he thinks there's something good but also he's very skeptical of them because they so often sure. turn into their own kind of tyranny and i wonder if that's a bit reflective like the first thing that you are inclined to do to protect the movement is to like just erase their memories and control them but then the next obstacle he's a little less aggressive with and until he like they encounter these obstacles and he just finds ways to Albino, I mean, finds ways to like not resort to violence or whatever. And then when they get to the water, they sacrifice. There's nothing they do to trick or control or whatever. All they can do is give up their own physical thing. So I, I think we're supposed to see these, in my mind at least, as progressive in nature. Uh, I will say he very mercilessly kills all the techno technos that are chasing him but i i think that was also meant to represent moses the same way that yeah like moses he can't leave the ship but then of course yodorowsky can never just reflect the religious stories or myths he always has to improve upon them so his <laughs> his moses just melds with a with a mouse and now he can leave the ship whereas the original moses had to die outside the promised land you know and so i i thought that was interesting like he's really takes those last couple books to really reinforce like this guy really is moses he's been saying it the whole time but he really is then he goes but my moses will be able to go into the promised land and still be the leader and i'm like oh yeah that's so him right he's like i found a way around this thing why why could Moses becomes Superman at the end. Exactly. <laughs> no, I agree that he's definitely, a, you know, leaning towards a progression of peace, but I would not definitely not follow a Messiah who would just murder millions of people. I I think, I think this, so this is my, my thought about this is that um, at that point, he's really just trying to survive and he's just doing whatever. What's the saint's name? Also, the saint just stays in that little thing he lives in, right? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. So the guy who found like the church universe. Yeah. What well, the guy who found the church? What was that guy's name? Saint something that sounded French. I, oh, I have it right here. Sorry, it is uh, Saint uh, Severo de Loyola. Yeah, de Loyola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. De Loyola. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I I don't know. If that's how you pronounce it. This in my head, I was thinking about Loyola, like university or whatever. But that's I maybe you don't pronounce it that way. But the, I think. At that point in his story, he's kind of just doing whatever the saint tells him to do and <laughs> and kind of hating it, you know, because he is so smart and he is so talented. But the saint's like, yeah, you are pretty smart, but like, that's not going to help right now. You know, like he just keeps trying to say, you can't do better than this. Like, this is all you can do right now. You have to get to this one position. And personally, I also would not follow a... Uh, uh, murderous saint but at that point or a murderous messiah but i don't think at that point he sees himself he's just trying to win like yeah. i don't know that it's like but he's morally what? chosen something yet uh he's just trying to like he he wants to ha you know be able to make the games that he believes in that will make the world the the galaxy a better place but um and not participate in what the techno priests are doing i don't even know if at that point he knows that eventually he's going to like destroy the 
the false god of the techno pre- like i don't know that he sees a way forward he's just kind of doing whatever this guy tells him to do which was a weird thing for me just not even just in all the murdering but in the idea that like so you're just going to separate yourself and go like hide in the pocket dimension like i don't really understand how this sort of fits in but i, I like at some point that saint guy he just kind of like he just goes away <laughs> yeah i also thought that was funny too that he's just kind of like all right so you got your family all right i'll see you guys later then you know and it's just like that part's just over and i was like well that's again some of this stuff i'm just now that we've read so many of these comic books i just get to some of these things that don't make sense to me and i go well that's that's jodorowsky for you it's fine same that's same that's jodorowsky for you speaking of jodorowsky i want to read a little bit from a interview that jodorowsky did from mean magazine back in 1999 he's asked specifically about the techno priests books and he says the techno priest i write about the whole new industry of the cd-rom the new games in the world the world is going to be dominated by games now video games but more advanced than video games they are audiogram games no the games directs the galaxies and the ruler of the galaxy are the businessman who is the techno priest business becomes religion and the uh the interviewer says i think we have that in america now and he says yeah you have that and you don't realize in america the god is the dollar no that is god at one time, the dollar will be sacred, and the industry will be the church. That I am doing. Then the techno-priest is the history of the high priest of that church, that industrial church. You need to learn to know how to make games, how to use the humanity, how to conduct the humanity to make the games, and to buy the games, etc. It is very interesting. And he's asked by the interviewer, are you interested in designing video games yourself? Which I thought was actually a funny question to ask, where it seems to be like really condemning the whole industry and the whole idea. But he's like, yeah, last year I did in L.A., They're doing that right now. I went there and proposed. I say, listen, I want to make this type of story. Are you interested? They said, yes, sure. I made two games of, and I am making a game of the Meta Baron. And they are doing, I think there's a new art form. Very interesting. And this guy ends this little section by saying, so you have to design a better game? And he says, yes, I think it's important. An artist needs to go there. Does not sound like someone who thinks of video video games as a art form without promise. Right, Um, right. Though I wish we had that Meta Baron's game, I would like to keep that. Can, I, can I read this other this other paragraph? Because I think please, this other please paragraph do. is is really interesting, and I think boils down this very well. Um, the interviewer says, "If you combine the game with the internet." Uh, He says, in the future world, humanity will work less and less, and we will have more and more time for them, the games. And then we will get bored. See my meaning? We are animals. We are bored. And then the games will be the most important thing. You know now, the world, no. All the world, we have games, and the world through television like games. You're in America. You know that. You have live television where a person is killing somebody. You see that on the television. You can follow that. Life is becoming a show, a game, no, more and more. Yeah, where the line between what is a game and what is reality is starting to blur. And I mean, look, I've been watching video after video of uh, that latest Apple VR headset over the last week, where basically you wear this headset within the reality that you live and it is more of a um, augmented reality type situation. Yeah, I mean, look, for someone in 1999, uh, he is he certainly saw where things were going. Um uh, and and it's it is interesting to see that he still would want to participate in making artistic style video games with the knowledge that particularly Americans might be a, a little complacent regarding uh, that art form at the time. Uh, Liam, any thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's crazy that he. I mean, not that he was alone, but that he's one of the people that is uh, predicting things that are somehow 
uh, very uh, uh, prescient, but also just that off enough that they're not exactly. <laughs> yeah, which that's is like right. it's how it always is, right? That someone is able to see something really clearly, but then it's it's just different enough that it's kind of also kind of funny, you know? How lovely that in 1999 he thought, oh, you know, because of technology, people have more and more free time. Yeah, buddy, we were all thinking that. <laughs> that's not yeah. how it all turned. Somehow out. <laughs> we managed to have less and less free time. Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. Um, I, I, I think and, and I think all that is really informative for like what's on his mind. The other thing I was thinking about while we were reading that uh, was relating to your concern, Julia, which is I wonder if it matters as an executioner that his job was primarily twofold, which was to deal with businesses that weren't being productive enough and to deal with um, uh, like like uh, countercultural types, whether they were social or political. Right. Uh, and I wonder to what extent. We're supposed to see that and not just think like, oh, it's kind of weird he's doing all this killing, but wonder to what extent that actually reflects the world we're in. Like, we all accept it as pretty normal that this thing that we're told we have to give our lives to, which is our job, could just go away in a moment so that some other shareholder can make all this money. And to me, the callousness with which those decisions are made is really not that different than murder, honestly, because some of those people are going to die because you made that decision and now your stock points went up a few points, let alone the willingness we have for once the state is involved, then all kinds of murder are justified and we don't really feel bad about it at all, you know? I mean, it's an interesting point. Uh, Again, I... I, it, because of the uh, density is is a word that we kind of keep going back to yeah, density yeah, yeah, yeah. Work. it's just hard to kind of pull um, it's hard to pull a lot of these thematic elements to know what he means to tell us until the final four issues where it all seems to coalesce and it moves a little bit away from that technology anyway to more of a humanism but we'll, t- we'll talk about that in just a moment when we talk about those issues I do want to mention because we haven't really uh, dove into it the art of Zoran uh, Zhanjatov in these first four issues and really the work as a whole, when we were talking about him with uh, before the call again, I can't remember what we had to say about his art. Obviously, he is trying to fill the shoes of one of the most beloved artists in history, uh, being Mobius. Here, he seems to have a little bit more leeway uh, to, and, and go into his own imagination a little bit more. There are full page spreads of wild scenes of 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 uh, intergalactic war, thousands of spaceships. You get to see him come up with these incredibly weird creatures. You get to see. Every type of, of uh, landscape that you could consider, whether it be water or fire or rock, I mean, this guy is just doing everything in this work. Starting with you, Julia, what did you think of the art in these books? It was stunning. Absolutely. Stunning. Stunning. <laughs> <laughs> it was really beautiful. It was really, really, really gorgeous. Um, just really fun to watch the because you are getting so many different textures and so many different uh, light and shadow. Um, I thought, and one of the things I liked, I liked a lot. I felt like he drew his ladies a very R. Crumb-esque. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. Yeah. (laughs) That might've been a demand from the writer. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, you see the, you see this guy, R. Crumb, draw the ladies like that. (laughs) He draws some nice ladies. (laughs) He does draw nice ladies. You know what else he also draws is nice animals. I thought every time Mm -hmm. he got to draw like, a person with a shark head or a cat head or a giant cat, which we'll run into pretty soon. He just really is able to capture it in a way that both feels very familiar in terms of our, you know, reality, our universe or whatever, but also trying to give it that, that kind of um, extra heightened reality. I mean, we saw kill wolf head in the in call, right. Mm -hmm. And, and so we were already used to seeing sort of an 
animal-headed human figure, but we see all sorts of versions of that in this. And there's one, I can't remember if it's in the first four issues or not, or if it's the final four, where, uh, and this is the, the part of the story with um, Albino's family, where they're battling a giant crab creature. And that thing was unbelievable. <laughs> I, was, I couldn't stop staring at it. I was like, I couldn't really, because I couldn't look at it. It was freaking me out. I, I don't want to look at that. <laughs> maybe that's why. It was just, it, it felt, it, unlike, you know, like a, a Lovecraftian type uh, monster, it felt both like a crab, like a, a crab that we had seen on this earth, and also monstrous in a way that I couldn't quite parse. I really, the way that he had, he managed to create weight and kind of a re- reality with these creatures is really quite something. What did you think of the art in this, Liam? Yeah, I think it's really great. I think, um, yeah, I agree with you. He, it felt like he was able to be a bit more creative than in the, the in-call stuff and really do some interesting work with the, the panels and the different sorts of use of uh, uh, big spreads and things like that. But also, he still recreates one of the things that I think is so distinctive about Mobius, which is these massive landscapes with incredible detail. Like yeah. There are so many shots of a new planet that has a civilization on it. Or that that panel towards the end, it wasn't in these first four, but with all the ships, right? Like yeah, There are so absolutely. many panels like that that, like, first of all, just thinking about drawing and inking that – that level of detail, it makes me think I would I would give up, right? It's just so mind blowing to me. I to wonder how it's even described kind of on the page, right? It's like does it, it's like oh yeah, they encounter every spaceship in the gallery uh, galaxy. Just put that on the page. All of them facing them at the yeah. same time. Uh, it's these buildings look like they kind of grew up like plants, but they're technological built. You know what I mean? Like there's so many <laughs> interesting things like that where the details are so. But it's also even though it's influenced by the ability of Mobius to represent scale, like incredible amount of scale, it also felt unique. It didn't feel like I'm trying to be like this incredible Titan. It had its own vibe to it, and I found it really interesting and compelling um, and had some strange aspects that uh, I thought were really well done and surprising to me, you know? Um, But one of my favorite things too, which is uh, uh, weird is like when people are grotesque or or bad in some way, he Uh really makes them gross. Like all the gross people were really fucking gross (laughs) in a way that really was uncomfortable. Uh, can, uh, I, can I please. very quickly point out my my I, I screenshotted it because it was my favorite frame from the fourth uh, issue, Halcatraz. Uh, there is a uh, <laughs> they're going to a planet at the center of capital Lunganar stood stood the Chicken Cop building, yes, distribution, distribution absolutely for children games, and it's just a giant chicken cop statue. It's <laughs> so amazing. What the hell is Chicken Cop? I don't know, but I like it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I just like. There's a part as well that that they show uh, workers in one of these video game factories and they're all wearing Mickey Mouse ears, which is mm-hmm. the most kind of direct commentary on a sort of capitalism that, you know, I mean, it's all about capitalism that we can we can relate to. But that one seemed very pointed compared to some other things. But like even that kind of cartoonish. You're right. It really stood out because it was it was like it's like how uh, is his name? Tini Griffey. Is that how it's yeah. right? It's Tini almost Griffey. like how Tini Griffey. <laughs> in this world is almost like a little more cartoonish and a little more um, the, the way he's drawn is a little different than everything that's around him. That felt the same way when you saw that, that, the, that, that statue or that giant figurine at the top yeah, of this place. Just it, totally different from everything else. And I just liked it. I have a vision of Jodorowsky standing behind his shoulders and be like, chicken cop, you must draw. Chicken cop. I must have a chicken cop. <laughs> uh, bigger. <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> yes. Even bigger. 
I think uh, I want to move into the next four issues now. But before I do it, I just want to ask just a quick question here. Just keeping with you for a second, Julia. We haven't really talked about the other story that's being told here. So we have the story of Albino taking the 500,000 techno priests like Moses to this new planet. We get to see his entire history, but he's also telling us the story of his family. Were those sections with his family, did you find that a distraction? Did you find it the highlight? Did you have a preference in terms of the three stories that were being told? I think it's very unique to have one that does both well, and I feel like this one did. I feel like sometimes it was nice to be like, oh, okay, let's take a break from that storyline. We get a little bit of this one. Uh, and it felt like a nice mix. And I wasn't like, oh, I don't want to go back to that one. I, I never <laughs> felt that way. So I think that they but they should they needed each other because I feel like I wouldn't necessarily have wanted to read just one or the other of those comics. But mixed mm-hmm. up, I thought they worked. I think the fact that they felt a little tonally different was like a it was refreshing as I was mm-hmm. reading it. I also liked how that structure happened where it was. You start with the present day, you go into the the reminiscing, you then go to the family story, and then you go back to the reminiscing. And it's like a very familiar structure as you go through it. And it helps kind of propel the narrative a little bit. How about you, Liam? Did you have a preference in terms of the stories that were being told? I mean, I think in the first couple of books, I was a bit more invested in his story. But as the secondary story progressed and gained more complexity and aspects to it, it was just as compelling and interesting. Plus... There's a bit more, not that the albino story is free of violence, especially when he gets to become an executioner and really does some wild shit. Sure. But but for a long section, the secondary story has more of the things that people might be used to if they've read other Yodorowsky stuff, whether it's sure. vengeance, violence, pirates, even like puking and bodily fluids and <laughs> you know uh, uh betrayals of certain kinds like it felt you know while the techno priest story is maybe getting a bit ethereal at times a bit abstract uh the secondary story is more connected to the physical like the physical world is not tossed aside as albino becomes more and more virtual and more and more connected to this uh, spirituality that is also an internet of a kind, right? Uh, if that was the only story, then it's almost like we're losing some of the visceral reality. But this secondary story connects us to more basic things. Pirates fighting each other, yeah. gold, mm-hmm. weird, other religions and stuff, you know? Prostitutes, lots of sexy yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah lots yeah, of yeah, sexy yeah. stuff. I mean, I, I, I think my progression was exactly the same, Liam, which is at first I was like, oh, no, I care more about the albino stuff. But as that other storyline progressed, I was getting more and more into it because the scope of the albino story was getting so large that he wasn't like he wasn't just killing individuals, right? He'd be killing (laughs) thousands or millions of people at a time. And but so even though the stakes of his family's uh, journey were in some ways much smaller they were a lot more personal and kind of relatable, I guess you might say, even if it very has that kind of space opera aspect to it. But we're going to probably talk about that, those a little bit more in this second half. I want to bridge this a little bit because I found an interview from 2002 where someone asked Jodorowsky what comics he was reading at the time. And he said that he, he says, these days I broaden my life in reading Lone Wolf and Cub. And I was just thinking of what a Jodorowsky version of Lone Wolf and Cub might look like. Just yeah. a moment, momentary <laughs> flight of fancy for myself to consider such a thing. So let us now move on to the final four issues of the Techno Priests. Uh, in terms of the art, again, it's, it's very consistent all the way through, but the scope gets larger and larger, just how it does in the Incal, where the Incal starts out with all those cityscapes, but by the end you have these huge voids and you have these 
um, very abstract images all the way through. It does that a little bit through here. And that's another thing where it's kind of a relief sometimes to move into the other stories where, you know, there's maybe a little bit more, I won't say creativity, but there's a little more variety in terms of what's being shown. Um, I'm just going to ask straight out. I'm going to start with you, Liam. What did you think about how the series ended? I know we're jumping right to the end here, but really this is the final four issues lead into that ending. What do you think about how the story ended and that final issue in particular? I like that. So, you know, as we've said, maybe too often, but it's just worth coming back to this idea that there's constantly challenges, there's constantly obstacles, and they're learning throughout the book to adjust and understand and see uh, what what there is to learn and what there is to do. I like that at the end, the last obstacle, he just has to be like, no, fuck you. We're not leaving. Like it's fine. Yes, he, like he destroys the ship, so they cannot leave. Well, but but even like even like this enemy, like every enemy they've faced, even the water, which is just like you're solid, not water. So I don't like you. It's like they take seriously the concerns of everyone. And I thought it was really interesting that the last thing, these spiritual beings, he's just like, no, with this, everyone here has figured something out to get here. You just have to accept us. And then they, he even demonstrates what I think is one of the themes of a lot of his work, right? So uh, in the book, we've talked about how there's two stories, the spiritual growth of albino and the physical drama, melodrama, high fucking operatic drama of his yeah. family. And he keeps saying, whatever I was going through, it was nothing compared to my family. You know, That's right. He just keeps saying, keeps saying it. And then at the end, we are giving the most literal example of this thing when they separate Groff into his higher self and his caveman self. And it's pretty clear that a certain view of the world is, yeah, kill the caveman, fuck that guy. And instead, the whole family, who, by the way, when we first meet every single one of these people, they suck, right? Like, they're all the most visceral, mean, cruel people. They're all like... No, I love both of these aspects of Groff, and yep. they get to live. And it's, it's Gorth, by the way. Gorth, oh, right? Sorry. You're sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. And and the people who learn a lesson are the spiritual beings that have been testing them. They go, yes. "Oh, you know what? Maybe we can learn from you. Maybe we can learn love." And I and <laughs> there's a there's a there's a sense in which okay, that's so fucking corny. Like and and even the idea that he ends on the slogan, guys. When we say he repeats a slogan about, uh, I have gonna, it. I have. I have the read end. It, read it. Read, read, okay, read it. Okay, because I I took a, cre- a screenshot. I was well, like, I have it right here on the on the thing too. You can read it straight from it. Uh, this is where our journey ends. The promised galaxy. At last, we have found a society where healthy human relationships are valued more highly than technological advances corrupted by an excess of science and a total lack of consciousness. <laughs> they, it's, like, it's, like, it's like it's like it's like he says. Remember the theme. This is the theme right at the end, like literally the final line. <laughs> but I think at this, so so that should be ridiculous. Like that should be a a. a a clue for people to be like, okay, just because they do say that exact phrase multiple times. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it becomes sort of like a, a mantra almost. And it's a very complicated mantra, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very wordy, complicated mantra. But for me, we've gone through all so many journeys. And this is something we've talked about before, but I want to bring it up again. While I don't know that I would go to the excesses that Yodorowsky does, where he works freely with, uh, not just violence, but sexual assault, and sure. there's very intense representations of gender, all this stuff, that might at some level be more extreme than I would want to do. The idea that part of the message is what matters is the spiritual, however, 
there is no leaving the physical. The physical and all this drama and blood and suffering and sex, this is all part of it. You think you're going to leave that behind? You're not. It's all connected. It's all together. We're only going to move forward when we highlight these relationships. Doug, that's like, I'm like, yeah, that should be how we do life. That's how we should write stories. Like, everything about that is so compelling to me that I was in this place where on one hand I was like, we're doing this again. But also I was like, this is the perfect ending. I fucking love it. Like, it just <laughs> it worked for me so well. And there's something for me very moving about, you know, this last challenge they're going to learn from us because we've actually figured something out together as a community. We've figured something out that is valuable, even to a force that seemed like a representative of like the unseen forces. I was like, perfect. Now, might it be a little too pat for some people? Sure, sure, sure. But we've had so much death and violence and suffering leading up to now. Give us a nice, this is such a nice little happy ending. I, I felt good. I felt like it was earned at the very least. I had... I was leading into that final issue. I was having a lot of is- issues myself, uh, more complex issues regarding what the what the story was trying to say about forgiving people who have wronged you. Like you said, his family, outside of maybe Onyx, right, who was treated so badly when she's a child, like they're they have gone through horrific things, but they also have become terrible people, and they become terrible people because be- people have been terrible to them. And all throughout those first four issues, they are treated horribly and they're enslaved. They're being puked on and shit on. And they're, you know, they really have been treated so horribly. But that the final issue had these like this all knowing being the one that controls this planet they arrive on when it makes them separate into their older selves and confront the fact that they have changed so much from those people that we encountered at the beginning. And it's just like, well. You know, this is in terms of a testament to change and the ability to forgive. I thought it, it really went somewhere very sincere mm-hmm. and I was moved by it in a way that I wasn't yeah. expecting yeah. to be moved by it. Uh, and I think that sincerity really plays out. How about you, Julia? What did you think of how this story ended? I feel the same way. I feel like uh, it was. I think that part in particular was really interesting because it was, you know, not only their past selves, but also the worst part of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Which is just the most terrifying thing. Like if you just took out all of my terrible, terribleness and put it in front of my face, that sounds like the, it's like the, uh, the, the portal in Neverending Story where they have the mirror that shows you your true self. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody can ever get past it. Um, I mean, they're obviously, you know, the, the religious kind of overtones of his stuff always makes me a little uncomfortable. So I feel like all of these people looking for their Moses to lead this to the promised land is it okay. Um, I like how they refer to God all throughout the series, right? Like the being that they that they in this other world previously referred to as God. <laughs> the primitives <laughs> called him God. Um, but, I, you know, I don't really – I know that they say that, you know, near the end they're floating in the void for a very long time when they come mm-hmm. across this galaxy, but – I don't know. Is that why is that planet the right one? It seems like it, it, it's not a good idea. <laughs> it seems <laughs> like like I know it's it's you know you're you're winning the planet over becoming one with the planet and like you can both be happy and I understand. Why is um, it better than the planet where they all had to cut off the end of their fingers in order to I, drink all the water? <laughs> I don't I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, but I think that's it's fun to have a galaxy that seems to have no edge and yeah. no rules really, so you never can get comfortable anywhere you are, which I think. Also, because so many people change sides or opinions so many times in every episode, you have to really 
be okay with wherever it goes, right? You can't kind of get angry if something weird happens because you're like, oh, well, there we go. Okay, let's go this direction now and just kind of go along for the ride, which is what I think Jodorowsky is always fun for. I liked how in the final issue that they encounter the Harakahan, the the people who run the planet, who are, I guess, more pure than anything that has ever been. And like um, Thark, who is a complicated figure, to say the least, and we'll talk about that in a second. He basically says like, oh, we're here to colonize you. <laughs> he just says it straight out. <laughs> like, eh. Maybe that was a translation issue, but uh, I, I just think it's funny their approach. Like you said, Liam. At the end of the day, they're teaching. They can live in harmony because they're going to teach them something new. And love is what they're really is about. It's an extra kind of level of purity that they hadn't encountered. And that only comes out because of how they treat Gorth, which, again, that is such an interesting aspect. The Taking this character that dies, who is at first like a real piece of garbage, who dies heroically, is brought back in a form where he doesn't have emotions anymore, where he's sort of robotic. And then because he doesn't have emotions, his evil side continually continuously takes over and that they choose to embrace the fact that he has that evil side to him uh, when he is split into both a good and evil side. Just fascinating and feels very reflective of the um, some of the philo- more philosophical elements of what we've seen from Jodorowsky so far. Um, in the end, what do we think of Albino as a character? Uh, I mean, we've already talked about him as kind of a Jodorowsky analog, but... Does he become impossible to relate to when his power levels become so large that he literally becomes, I mean, we've, we've already, you already said it, Liam, so we can say it. Uh, he, he, he morphs into his mouth. So as you were saying, he can't leave a ship at the end because he's not really a corporeal, corporeal being. So what he ends up doing is morphing with his uh, mouse friend, Teeny Griefy, and becomes a furry, basically a, uh, animal man with a tail and everything and that's how he's able to live on this planet um what do we think uh, uh going over to you liam what do you think of albino as this character overall in the series i mean that's an interesting question doug because i think in a lot of ways uh he's hard to read right uh because when he's younger it's it's this combination of desire for something beautiful and important and continual frustration that he can't get there. Right. Uh, and then when he's older, he just knows a lot and he's very patient, <laughs> but it's all very like above humanity. It, it, it doesn't feel relatable because he's, it's not that he's perfect, right? Because he, there are mistakes. People do die. He doesn't know everything they're going to find. He is He gets powerful. corrupted by that shadow woman. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I mean, even like the the old the old man version of him, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, the, there's all this stuff where it's like he um he he is very powerful and can come up with powerful ways to do things, but he's not perfect, or else he would know not to do this or not to do this. like when they go to the planet with the evil tree. Yeah, he figures out how to fix it, but like people got treated very poorly before he figured out how to uh-huh. fix it. So it's it's not like he's perfect, <laughs> but he is very powerful, and it's hard to relate to that. The part that I do find kind of relatable, though, is this idea that um, eventually it felt to me that the game where he builds the game and all and he finds this like five hundred thousand people to go find a new planet is while it's very sort of a i guess a powerful thing it also feels a bit honestly like a retreat like he it's can't just a cult <laughs> he, he can't fix this galaxy he's he can't he can't even really he is the high 
you know, priest of the techno priest. And he just keeps getting fucked up. Like he can't do any, you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no thing he can do where he could just flex some powerful muscle and change the galaxy. So all he can do is retreat. And while I think the story ends up more hopeful than all that, sure, having the hope not be in actually making this galaxy any better, but in trying to get away, there's something about that that, though it might still seem magical, is also kind of like feels a little bit defeated. And while I wouldn't say that I'm a Moses or anything like that, the idea that often I feel like I have to make something good out of something that feels bad is sure. – fucking very relatable to me it's on a much smaller scale obviously i'm not secretly albino the high techno priest but uh do i feel like there are multiple times when the circumstances i'm faced with don't seem like no matter what i do i can really fix them and i have to find a different way to relate to them and to understand uh my place in the world just to feel like there's like a tomorrow yeah and i think that is why i don't find yodorowsky's hopefulness in his work or even on his Instagram uh, at all cloying because it often is a hopefulness rooted in the idea of suffering and violence and terrible things. It's always a hope that's like, how does this hope persist when it's covered in blood and shit? You know, how do we, how do we make it keep going? And so like, while he's very powerful, he got to the highest position in the galaxy really. And was like, Okay, this isn't going to work. We got to just leave. Everybody, we got to go. We got to go. There's nothing I can do to fix this at, at all. There's nothing. Yeah, I mean, again, the the abandoning the system entirely as opposed to trying to find some sort of peaceful existence within a system that is so corrupt and perverted. I mean, I, it is something that we've seen a few times in his work. I want to say, by the way, that one of the things that the ending of this book, this series, reminded me of a little bit was – the ending of Battlestar Galactica, the Battlestar Galactica reboot of the early 2000s, which for those who haven't seen it, it has a very controversial ending where we discover that it was also that they all end up on this planet that is a prehistoric Earth. And they give up all of the technology that we've seen in the series to live uh, like an agrarian society. And this idea of kind of the rejection of technology and recolonizing a place it was kind of similar to that, uh, though I think um, uh, I wonder again, I. I don't know if there was any direct inspiration at all from it, but it is kind of interesting. I always wonder about what this is trying to say about that that repeated mantra about the rejection of technology. It didn't seem as pointed towards the idea of technology generally. It's just that, hey, technology, we've, we relied on it so much that we couldn't connect with people on a human uh, aspect anymore. And we we're going to, we got we have to find this place so at least we can develop real relationships and real you know love because that's a big core part of it. Um, Julia, what did you think of Albino? Uh, and now that his story is complete, what did you think of him as a character? Did he become less relatable as the series went on? I feel like he was only relatable at the very end. It was only yeah. when he morphed with the mouse that he became. But he became, it was, he's he's being okay with his animal self, right? Which was the thing that the whole time he was trying to be better than everyone. And so how can you relate to that, right? Where someone who, and they are just better than everyone, right? They're like, oh, you're the savior, you're the prophet, you're a prodigy. Because I can't relate to a child prodigy because they're way ahead of me, right? So Mm -hmm. I think it's something that you're watching him from a kind of a distance of a character, like a Superman that you're like, I can't relate to that guy. I don't fucking know what it would be like to be Superman. Who knows, (laughs) right? And the same kind of thing, if you just have infinite power. And then I doubled myself and then I took my brain out and then like, you know, all of whatever you want to do, you go, okay. That's fair enough. Absolutely. I I stopped time for a second. I went through space. You go, okay, that's fine, man. Um, But then, you know, becomes... 
you know, more or less, even though he becomes a, a hybrid mouse man, he also becomes the most human he's been through the whole series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he can participate with his family as well. I always think about that moment where after these stories being separate, the entire series uh, outside of the very beginning, where at that time his family are so terrible to him and they have this horrible relationship that when they finally reconnect after everything that they've been through separately, they have that embrace and they all love each other so much because they've changed so much as characters and evolved so much, which I think is a real, you know, that evolution I think could be seen as somewhat controversial because, let's face it, Panifa, his mother, she is raped at the beginning of this series by those pirates. And, and she, we, they, they gla- kind of gloss over that they kill his dad as well. They killed his oh. dad. You're right. They do gloss that over pretty much because at that time she's supposed to be some like she's going to be royalty. But because of this assault, she loses that entirely. She's left for dead and has to kind of create things on her own. But it's all about kind of a rape revenge story. She's trying to get revenge on these three pirates that really each one of them is the parent of one of her children. The idea that this at the center of this, that she has to forgive not forgive all of them. It's not. There's not an expectation that she has to forgive everyone who has done her so terribly. But in this case, that specifically when it comes to Thark, that because he is punished, you know, he's he, not by her, but he's locked away, um, and and has a revelation about himself and is able to progress and evolve as a human being. And at some point, not only does she forgive him, but she actually falls in love with him and becomes his partner in life. I mean, there is an interpretation of that that is extremely negative, right? That some people might see this as like, oh, you not only should forgive your rapist, but you might fall in love with him afterwards. I I just want to deal with it because it is the most controversial for me part of this story as a whole, even more so than the genocide, to be entirely honest, because that feels more like a direct commentary on that side of the story um, about forgiveness as a whole. Liam, did you have any thoughts on that? I, I don't even know if it's something we should be talking about, but it is something that's stuck in my my throat a little bit, but that is why that part in the last uh, issue was so revelatory for me. The idea of them facing off against their horrible selves of the past. Well, I think for me, Doug, it struck me maybe a little less heavy because I've been immune to it from reading Jodorowsky's I mean, there is something, (laughs) that's one of the reasons maybe as well I wanted to mention it simply because, yeah, maybe not the forgiveness theme about it, but certainly sexual violence is a consistent theme in a lot of his work. Right. But I, I, I also think that um, I think he often deploys violence in a way that is very visceral, but maybe is slightly detached from um, like real world stuff. And, and, and maybe that was partly like, I, I wonder if in a way the use of, uh, genocide is a character thing for albino that he learns how to be ruthless and it's like a, it's like a lesson for him about the evils of the world and we don't you know it's tragic that he kills all these people but the comic doesn't really take it so seriously that there's a moment of like uh, deep repentance from him sure I wonder if that gives us a map for reading this which is like uh And honestly, I I do think it's about forgiveness to some extent, uh, but I also wonder if it's about the idea that life changes and oftentimes our most deeply held uh, 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 convictions are not sufficient. Like she's built her whole life around revenge and the fact that the revenge is more important to her than being the biggest cheese magnet in the galaxy, (laughs) it all goes away. 
right? And there's this idea that that we can lose everything because we're more committed to this ideal than we are to like the facts on the ground. And so I I don't think for me it's helpful to look at a situation like that and wonder like is this what Yudorowsky thinks of like actual sexual assault. I just don't think that's a helpful way to read the book. And I, it's just not the vibe I get from sure. him as, as how to interpret that work. But I do think the idea that like um, you might discover that your enemy is not who you thought they were is interesting. But I, I have to support what you're saying about being controversial. I don't know if you guys have checked out that show, Has Been Hotel. Have you guys seen this show? People I have not. I know that you've mentioned I, it on the I don't uh, even know what that is. Oh, it's a, it was a, someone basically, you know, long story short, short was like a creator on YouTube and took like uh, a very uh, small idea and turned it into a pilot with a GoFundMe. And now the show is on Amazon. It took like three years to make the show and get it on Amazon, but it's on Amazon. So it's sort of one of those internet creator becomes showrunner success stories. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, you know, long story short, the show's about uh, uh, someone in hell wants to make a hotel that it, that people <laughs> stay at and learn about learn about improving their lives so that they could eventually find redemption and go from hell to heaven. So it's sort of an idea of hell doesn't have to be permanent. Maybe we can find redemption. And it's you know it's a very queer story. Lots of queer characters. Lots of sex and violence and foul language. And uh, it's getting a lot of backlash because of the forgiveness. Because people are offended at the idea. And not in this case, which is even more visceral, of someone forgiving someone who assaulted them. It's literally just the general idea that any bad person could find that kind of redemption is being considered very offensive. <laughs> and I think in that way, even though, yes, there are some tough questions to act about the nature of the story, it's yet more evidence that actual forgiveness, not this general thing that a lot of religious folks want to talk about that's just like, oh, yeah, I feel kind of bad, but then I feel better because I think about not real stuff, but forgiveness that's like <laughs> actual people have actual reasons to be mad and hateful towards each other because actual bad things happened. And how do we work through that stuff? That's actually more controversial than we say. I think when people talk about forgiveness, oftentimes we're thinking about like your brother took your video game or something. You know what I mean? It's like a very yeah, sort yeah, of base yeah. thing. Sure. But actually, the question of forgiveness is very topical and difficult it's not an easy question there are times where it's like how dare you even suggest forgiveness it this is a situation for which there is no forgiveness and so like i i think for me instead of focusing just on that circumstance i think it's this pushing from Yodorowsky, which I'm consistently surprised by, that he thinks forgiveness is a valuable thing to think about. And maybe it doesn't always come. Maybe there are situations where you can't do it. But I think it's related to his use of psychology and this idea of psychomagic. He's very invested in the idea that sometimes when we can't forgive, we're hurting ourselves. We're, yeah. we're making ourselves There's, there's definitely an element of self-forgiveness as well. Right. Yes, 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 yes. And yeah. I think that's interesting. It's interesting that that's a continual theme. And I find it really compelling. Even if, you know, I personally would find this to be too hot a potato and i'm glad you brought it up doug but he doesn't this is a thing he's worked with before <laughs> yeah. and i and i don't think he's handling it in a way that's disrespectful but it is it would be too controversial for me as a writer to really be delving into this i will say if this all happened in a single issue of a comic it would be too much for me i think it'd be but a lot the fact but the fact that it is it evolves in a more natural way. It, I think it feels a little more earned, but I don't know if everyone would necessarily feel that way, and I don't want to speak for everyone. Julie, do you have any thoughts on that? It is It is something that, again, it, I, I was glad that it was sort of 
commented on in the final issue, but I also, as I was reading it, I was thinking, um, the expectation or maybe expectation is the wrong word. The, the idea of this character forgiving someone who wronged them to such a huge extent, it might, um, be pushing my ability to believe, but I mean, the, the, the fact, the idea, the kind of overwhelming theme that love, not love conquers all that makes it seem too simplistic, but that love can come out of forgiveness is something that I really kind of connected with. What did you think of that element of the story? Uh, I don't know, but I think that you go into Jodorowsky stuff expecting a lot of harshness. Yeah. I think he likes to show you the harshness of the world as much as he likes to show you the joy and the love. And I think that's part of what I like about him. You know, that's also part of why he's a little undecipherable and a part of why he's hard to show or talk to about everybody because there's a lot of stuff in there that you go, oh, yeah, you know, he does blow up a bunch of frogs. Sorry, guys. You know, like there's a lot of stuff in there that you're like, I don't know what to say about that. But I also can't discount his entire body of work because of those small details. So I don't know. It's kind of you got to take the whole the whole because he's showing you everything in the world, which is all of this. So that's kind of what he does. I feel like like a god or a creator, one might say. I guess the only thing that I worry about a little and maybe this is an unnecessary concern is simply that he might be commenting more on himself, which is that we talked about it when it came to El Topo, right, that he used to tell that story about the sexual assault that that he has since said that didn't happen that he was just trying to shock people but just the idea that people who do terrible things unforgivable things maybe should be forgiven and that you can move past these things and i think that for every person that they have to decide for themselves what they're comfortable forgiving and in the case of this um the, the maybe the thought process that f- through forgiveness comes a freedom i mean that might be true for some people, and maybe it's not true for others, and maybe this isn't something that we can kind of uh, come to any kind of consensus with today. So let me end our conversation before we get into some final thoughts with a question that's a little bit easier. Liam, notoriously, when we talked about the Meta Barons, you found those two robots to be annoying. We, <laughs> we have a, uh, a character in this, uh, in this entire series that is somewhat similar, obviously is meant to bring to mind. Tinegriffy is this little mouse. He makes jokes. He talks about pissing on things he's very scatological he's a little bit annoying like purposely so throughout the series what, did you like tinny griefy more or less than the robots from the metabarons way way more <laughs> I, I figured you might immensely the, more the fact that he's so important to that final issue is probably a good uh, a good reason to like him a bit more i mean i think he plays you know various roles throughout the series so narratively it makes sense what he's doing i also think while I did find those robots very frustrating, the thing about Tinny Griefy that I appreciated is it felt to me like, you know, let's say that in some ways Albino could represent Yodorowsky, right? I think Tinny Griefy also represents Yodorowsky, right? Like to me, I'm reminded continually of the way that in El Topo, he moves from the mystic to the clown, right? right. I think there's some sense for Yodorowsky in which part of who he is is not just a philosopher uh an artist uh uh and some someone dealing with psychology like he has all these very heavy hats right he has all these very important personae and he's also a clown he's also yes. someone who studied mime he's also someone who understands the circus arts and i think that there's a sense in which that level of whimsy is a part of the story or part of the nature of who we are. And I don't know that it's always 
balanced. And I think in uh, the Meta Barons, maybe I just didn't feel like it was balanced. But for this, well, yeah, I guess there are times people, Tinegriffi could seem kind of frustrating. I felt like in a way he represented a part of albino and so when they merged it just made sense right yeah. he he's a connection for albino to a very phys- physical world even as albino seems to be leaving that world and connecting them just made sense in my brain thematically i like how there's all throughout it tini griefy just has to constantly say oh i'm glad i hid in your pocket i'm glad i was in the back of your neck because it's just like he's going through so many different things you're wondering where's tini griefy in all of this <laughs> i like i'm glad that you mentioned the clowning aspect because you know from depot in the in call to the robots to tini griefy this kind of clownish character to not undermine but to kind of um to bring us back to earth a little from some of the heavy material that we're dealing with. I think it's something that Joe Dorowski himself feels like it's very important. Uh, Julia, I have a feeling that you love Teeny Griefy. What did you think of him in the series? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, my dream is the Teeny Griefy Depot spinoff. I want to <laughs> yes. see their adventures throughout the universe, right? <laughs> and this, this is what I'm talking about. There'd be a lot of puking, but that's okay. I can deal with that. Um, I thought, you know, he's adorable and he's the comic relief, which you need. You know, can you imagine just sitting through all of Albano's speech shows with no comic relief? It would be. I know, right? So the least, and, and a lot of times, like the robots and for Meta Baron's comic relief can be grating, uh, but he isn't. I think he's he's fun and, and it's the same way Zippo is, right? Like, I'm like, oh, he, he needs to have a sidekick who is going to have this other part of him. I think uh, I want a little Tinny Griefy t shirt. Will you buy me one for my birthday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was reading an interview with Jodorowsky a couple of days ago where he was talking about Depot. Like, they were, he was being asked if he was going to do any more Jodoverse comics. And he said that he wanted to do one about Depot's family and, yeah. like, his history and stuff. So maybe, hey, that could still be in the cards. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. Folks, we've made it to the end of eight issues of uh, The Techno Priest. Uh, the depths of this series, I, this is one maybe of all the ones that we've 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 read so far outside of maybe the first in call book that i'm more likely to i think revisit and re-explore and get into so i'm really i was really pleased with my whole experience reading this i think it's an easier read to some extent than some of the material uh in the jodoverse that we've encountered so far even though obviously it has some real difficult material it is still hey these are comics for adults folks we have to um to understand that there's going to be a lot of content that is going to be violent is going to be sexual and that at some points is going to be somewhat controversial uh sticking with you julia any final thoughts on the techno priests give it a read folks <laughs> you'll like it ding there you go <laughs> if you don't like it please feel free to drop us a line on our uh on our uh, different social media or through cinemasmortsboard.com i'd love to hear someone's thoughts who who read through the series and was not pleased with it or found it at odds with other work from Jodorowsky. If you're more familiar with his work, please let us know. Liam, any final thoughts on the techno priests? I was surprised how compelling it was. And for me, I mean, I'm excited to read whatever comics he does, but I really thought Meta Barons, partly because I remembered parts of it from my childhood, but also just like the art and the themes it represented. I thought that was going to be my jam. Way more than the techno priest. I mean, come on. Sure. I, I need a comic Absolutely. about the techno priest. I don't. I don't need that. And now I'm. I think I'm more into this than a lot of the other stuff we've read. Which is not to say I think that much of the stuff isn't great. It's just I found it really interesting and and compelling. It's. I still think the in call is my favorite. Uh, but this was really really good. And I think 
interestingly, I know a lot of people who've checked out the end call. I didn't know this existed before you brought it up as part of this podcast that we're doing. So I, I suspect there are probably more people who haven't checked it out. And I think if, if you appreciate any of his comics, I think this is this is a must read in my mind. Like I was saying at the beginning of this episode as well, there hasn't been as much written in English about the Techno Priests. Uh, I would love to see more people's thoughts on it, more people's opinions. If you've read it in the past, please let us know. If you want to check it out, if you've listened to two hours of us talking about it without ever having checked it out before, uh, you can find it at the Humanoids website at humanoids.com. They have both a hardcover trade of the entire series available for $54.99 American, or you can get a digital version for $24.99, over 400 pages. You can check out the entire Eight, uh, eight, eight volumes of the entire thing. Read it. Give us uh, your feedback on it and let us know. But that's it. We're going to say goodbye to Jodorowsky Comics for a little bit. It's been a long time coming. We haven't gone to a Jodorowsky-directed film in a very, very long time. On the next episode of Jodorowsky, we're getting to it. 2013's The Dance of Reality, directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky. It's referred to at the end of the Jodorowsky's Dune documentary i have never seen it i know that people love i know i have not seen it uh it is something that i've i've been holding off for for this entire series so far to have something new from jodorowsky to watch so i'm very very curious about that we are actually going to pair it with something uh that is jodorowsky uh related in a uh, a number of different ways it's 2013's the voice thief a short film about 25 minutes long directed by aiden jodorowsky co-written by Alejandro Jodorowsky and starring the late Cristobal Jodorowsky as well as Aja Argento about an opera singer that loses their voice uh, and their husband embarks on a dark journey to recover through supernatural means. I was scanning through it earlier. It seems very Jodorowsky and I think that we're all going to really enjoy it and it's not something that I've seen previously. So yeah, on the next episode, 2013's The Voice Thief and 2013's The Dance of Reality. What do you think, Julia? Are you excited? Oh, I'm so excited. Dance of Reality is so fucking good. <laughs> I'm very, very excited to check it out. And like we were saying, it's going to be a, a, a celebration of the whole Jodorowsky clan on the next episode of Man, Jodorowsky. He just, he just, those, those sons are some talent, the whole family, talent like nobody else. Well, we'll get to see a lot of that. How about you, Liam? You excited about the next episode of Jodorowsky? Yeah, I've been really excited to check this out. And I think it'll be interesting to see... To, to visit it after we've read so much of his work yes. between movies and think about how that that work and that thought process might be reflected in this movie. And Brontus Jodorowsky. God love him. Just yeah, wait, well, you guys. Wait for Brontus. <laughs> well, I'm excited about that as well. Also that we've been investigating his biography so much through all of this work. Something that is, is uh, explicitly autobiographical, I think, will be very interesting to dive into. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes, our entire archive of Jodowowski, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, obviously, Doug, we encourage everyone to check out uh, Cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, where our latest episodes show up, as well as a whole family of podcasts that we think you'll enjoy. Uh, if people want to not just check out Jodowowski, but a number of shows that we do, you can head to cinemasmorgasbord.com, where not only do we have our archive, but they are arranged by topic. So maybe you only like Jodowowski, which, you know, I get that. You know, Julia's great. Or maybe you want to hear us yap about... I don't know, Steve Buscemi or uh, Vic Diaz or whatever, you can organize the episodes. <laughs> the two examples. 
I know those two. There's a lot of stuff we talk about. So you can organize the episodes by topic and explore which ones you want to hear over at cinemasmokersboard.com. And of course, Cinepunks is on social media, uh, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X on Instagram and Facebook and Blue Sky and whatever Twitter is now and all that stuff. Julia, you have been showing off your movie, I Know What You Need, one of the final dollar babies we've now discovered Yeah, uh, over the last few months, uh, the, the adaptation of the Stephen King story, the feedback, it seems like it's been absolutely overwhelmingly positive. You're winning awards all over the place. Julia, where can people check that out if they can? And where can people check you out? Uh, if you want to see the movie, you can DM me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. I'm at Julia C. Marchesi. Uh, yeah, the, it has been received very well. It's continuing to play festivals. It has two coming up in LA in the next couple of months. So I'm really excited. And then I have two other podcasts, Horror Movie Survival Guide, which we just had our 350th episode. So we're super happy about that. And then I also have another podcast called The Losers Club, which is all about Stephen King. So you can listen to me talk about all of those things and more. You should, of course, follow Julia on all versions of social media. We'll put those links in the show notes. There's going to be a lot of links in the show notes uh, this week, listeners. So please check those out. You can, of course, follow me on Blue Sky. That's uh, all I really am on. Uh, just look for Doug Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And, of course, you can find Cinema Smorgasbord on Twitter still at uh, Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. But for now, we'll be back very soon with 2013's The Dance of Reality. Good night, everyone. Night-night. Thank you.